If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our gospel reading, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. This passage that we heard read just a few moments ago, let's listen to the beginning of it once again. And I want you to try to count how many times the donkey is talked about as being tied up and untied. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As they came close, as near as Bethany and Bethphage, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples on ahead, go into the village over there, he said, and as you arrive, you'll find a a colt tied up, one that nobody has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you untying it? You should say, Because the master needs it. The two who were sent off and found it, just as Jesus had said to them. They untied the colt, and its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? Because the master needs it, they replied. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and mounted Jesus on it. As he was going along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. When he came to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to celebrate and praise God at the tops of their voices for all the powerful deeds they had seen. And they sang, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. How many times has the cult talked about being tied and untied? Five times. Now that's a lot. It seems like a kind of a... And a fixation on a minor detail. What's going on here? Well, here's what's going on. Finally, the king has arrived in the capital. This is the moment that all of Jesus' life has been building up to. And more than that, this is the moment that the entire story of the Bible and of the universe has been building up to. Because you see, the Bible is the story of the creator who is the king. And that creator and that king is Jesus. So as he enters Jerusalem, they want you to know, Jesus wants you to know, that for the first time, he's riding on a donkey, on a colt. He's been walking all over Israel for years. He doesn't need this to make it at the last minute. Why is he doing this? He's doing this because he's showing by riding on this colt that he's a king. From, you see, from the black hole 55 light, million light years away that we saw for the very first time this week to your own personal savings account. Here is the king. He's the king of that black hole. He's the king of your savings account. Jesus is the king who owns Everything. Why? Because he is the creator of everything that exists. Before time and space even existed, it was the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit out of which everything was created. The love of God bubbled over like a shaken up bottle of champagne. The love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was so full That the entire cosmos was created out of it. And God, this amazing king who is so generous, 
This creator of heaven and earth, out of his incredible generosity, he created you. And he created me. He created humans to bear his image. And he invited us to rule over creation with him. So think about this for a minute. Human beings were created to rule with the creator king over his kingdom, cultivating it, unpacking its potential, developing it into a flourishing empire. So the same generous God who called lions and fruit-bearing trees and coral reefs into existence generously gave all of this universe to humans. So that we could enjoy it and protect it and develop it. Humanity's high calling is nothing less than co-ruling and co-loving everything with the Father and the Son. So can you imagine what that was like? Just try with me for a moment to imagine the world when it was new. God's presence and his pleasure radiate life amid a vast and vibrant garden. Far-flung forest drenched with pools of dew and pools of light. And these forests, imagine them just beginning to bud and swell and sway for the first time. And living creatures freely moving on the land and in the sea. And birds flying above the earth. And a bright river flowing out of Eden splashes its way through the rich forest floor and divides into four separate headwaters that spill into lands that are filled with gold and bdellium. Imagine all this brand new beauty, all this fruit, all these flowers unfurling. Now here's the key. Imagine this because this is the environment in which humans first began to doubt The king was generous. This is when the crazy rebellion began. This was a setting in which the human race succumbed to the deceit of viewing God as a closed-fisted curmudgeon. They rejected their God-given vocation and they rebelled against God's good and generous kingdom and they brought sin and suffering into every corner of this vibrant creation. The snake and the grass tricked our ancestors into disobedience by causing them to doubt the goodness and generosity of the king. And this rebellion resulted in human beings being thrown out of God's kingdom and joining the kingdom of darkness where Satan reigns. But God is so full of love that right there, Right in the face of human rebellion, our generous creator amazingly promised that of all the generosity, of all the beauty in this universe, the best gift was yet to come. Right there in the garden, on the very scene of humanity's rebellion against his kingship, God promised to send a savior, a conquering king who would crush the serpent and free humanity from the serpent's reign. That is what's going on in Luke chapter 19. 
That is what is happening. God, at long last, has kept his promise by sending his son as the conquering king to free God's children. from. This is a warrior king coming in to deliver. That's why Jesus is so particular about the cult, about the tying and the untying, because all of that was promised. The tying and the untying was promised in Genesis 49. The writing on the colt that had never been written on before was promised in Zechariah 9. And Luke doesn't want you to miss this. And the king doesn't want you to miss this. They want you to know that the entire weight of the drama of the universe was bearing down on this unbroken colt. In that moment, all of the promises were coming true. And that's why the disciples responded by throwing their shirts down on the road and making the best red carpet that they could make. And the people are singing the great psalm, Psalm 118, that they had learned to sing in the moment when the king finally showed back up. Here is the creator king, riding into the capital, reclaiming his creation. And he's inviting all of humanity to become in him what they were always meant to be, a member of God's royal, priestly family, co-workers, co-rulers in God's glorious kingdom, joining with him in preserving and protecting and developing and cultivating the entire universe. And that's the gospel. At its heart, the gospel is the good news that God is both bringing his kingdom and welcoming his people into the kingdom through the cross, By their forgiveness and reconciliation, King Jesus is our only Savior. And forgiveness for sins is the welcome into his kingdom. And that's what's happening in this moment. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, the king has returned to set up his kingdom, to claim what is rightfully his, to offer forgiveness of sin for everyone so that all of us could come into God's good and gracious and peaceable kingdom. But something has gone terribly wrong. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, quit, stop it, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones will cry out. You see, all of the universe is bearing down in this moment. All of the universe is anxious and needful of this moment. In other words, the Pharisees were saying, don't let them treat you like a king. And Jesus said, not a chance. If the rocks have to take up the responsibility of the humans, they will do it. Because this is a creation-wide cosmos broad moment this is the moment and it's not just the Pharisees though who refuse to acknowledge Jesus as king look at verse 42 when Jesus drew near and saw the city he wept over it saying would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they're hidden from your eyes For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade and and surround you and, and, and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. 
and they will leave not one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, when you realize that the reason the rocks will jump up in praise if the humans don't recognize what's going on, when you realize that this is the king of creation, then Jerusalem's rejection of the king will break your heart too. It is so sad. It is so pitiful. It is so short-sighted. It is so wicked. But we need to be careful here. Because we can be a lot like Jerusalem. We can fight against accepting Jesus as our owner too. Especially in the affluent West. Our sense of self can be some, become so wrapped up with our idea of self-ownership. You own yourself. Can't nobody tell you what to do. They can't tell you what to do with your body. Women, nobody can tell you what to do with your womb. Men, nobody can tell you what to do with your money. This is at the core of what, what we here in the West have been bred into. That the thought of belonging to somebody it, it sounds immoral. It sounds like an insult. It sounds like a threat and not a hope. After all, especially here in America, where we can never downplay the great wickedness of slavery. This is in our natu national consciousness. Being owned is wicked. We know that. Without a question, this great evil of slavery darkens our history. And this great assault our nation perpetrated has corrupted our whole society. And it incurred a collective debt that will have to be paid. And this sin has traveled down through society, through the centuries. And the cost of repairing that sin will have to be borne. The debt of slavery and the continuing pattern of discrimination are tearing our nation apart at its seams. So how can we look at a moment where somebody claims ownership of us and not feel it as a threat? And so I think it is almost impossible for us to conceive of the idea of being owned, of having a master, as a good thing. Because we're still having to come to grips with the moment where we misplayed that hand. I think we want to reject a king claiming ownership over us. Look back at verse 14. We do not want this man to reign over us. But here's the painful irony. We don't actually own ourselves. We're simply living under the burden and the illusion of self-ownership. Just like Jerusalem. Think of commercials that tell women that at 45 years of, old, of age, they should still look 28. And if not, it's their fault for not buying the product. Think about parents who are being promised their children's future success if they will only pay for the finest education available and attend every extracurricular sporting activity. From the clothes we wear to the food we eat. The reality is that convention and society and a complex set of other forces own us. 
We are owned by our possessions, and we are owned by those around us, and we are owned by people we have never met, but who exert incredible power over our lives in some of the subtlest and most sinister ways ever ever invented. Do you think we're less owned than medieval people who lived in societies with kings? So just like Jerusalem, On that original Palm Sunday, we have been seduced by the myth of self-ownership. And the result is, like Jerusalem, we cannot hear that the news is good. We hear that the news of a king who offers us ownership is a threat. We cannot see that the gift of Jesus in our midst is a gift. The gift of Jesus' ownership for us, like Jerusalem, is hidden from our eyes. Look at verse 42. Jesus is crying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But they are hidden from your eyes. We're not as free as we like to think. In other words, the real question is not if we will be owned, but to whom will we belong? Will we belong to the one true owner or to competing powers? In the process of our rebellion against God's ownership, we inevitably end up serving, being enslaved to degrading passions and powers rather than the Lord of love. Remember, Romans chapter 1 verse 6 says we have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Isn't it painfully true that we want someone to save our souls, but not to rule our lives? Isn't it easier for you to talk about Jesus as a savior than you as his slave? Do you see how we've been messed up? Thankfully, even as Israel pushed him with this view, Jesus refused to quit the fight. Look at verse 45, and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Now look, when Jesus is driving those people out of the temple, He is not losing his temper. He is not mounting some angry protest about the commercialization of temple business. He is offering a solemn and serious warning to all of Israel about the wrath of God. But here's the catch. The wrath of God is not an emotion. It's not an emotion of God that flares up from time to time as though God is having a temper tantrum. To talk about the wrath of God, to hear Jesus describe it in verses 43 to 44, make no mistake, the destruction of Israel, the destruction of Jerusalem that he said is about to come, and we do know it occurred in AD 70, that is an absolute historical fact. Jesus, in describing that, and then in verse 45, as he drives out the money changers, he is demonstrating it. When we talk about the wrath of God, this is not talking about a temper tantrum. 
This is a way of describing God's absolute commitment against every wrong thing and his coming to set matters right. The wrath of God is the commitment of God, not an emotion of God. We've got to try to understand this. To speak of God's wrath against Jerusalem doesn't mean that God is an enraged, vindictive old man in the sky or on the earth like some Zeus or Odin striding the globe. It is essential to read the wrath of God as symbolic language. It is a figurative way of expressing the eternal opposition of God to all that would hurt and destroy his good creation even when you embrace it and it owns you. Jesus was warning Jerusalem that they are risking the eternal opposition of God to their settled commitment to resist the king. Because the king alone can deliver his creation from the darkness and the sin and the selfishness. God's justice is in no way in competition with his mercy. You see, the temple had become the focal point of Israel. It stood in the public imagination for the unshakable promise of God to keep Israel safe. Come what may. And so Israel had to face the challenge that unless God's promise was met with faith and obedience, the promise would count for nothing. And indeed, worse than nothing, the promise would turn into a curse. And it's the same for us. Everything I've said about Israel, everything I've just said about the wrath of God on Jerusalem is true of us. It's the same for those of us who are in God's family. It's the same for those of us who have been baptized and take our salvation for granted. In your baptism, you were brought into covenant with a holy God. And so if you are living in disobedience, your disobedience doesn't simply prevent blessing. It doesn't simply prevent you from coming, as it were, back to square one. It calls down the judgment that a sorrowful, tearful God will pour out on you when you reject him and his purposes. So what about it? What about you? Do you want God to save your soul, but you're not up for him to rule your life? Your whole life, not merely your eternal destiny, but your personal life, your political life, your financial life, and your sexuality? Will you bow your knee to King Jesus in every sphere when it comes to romance, justice, to gender? What about ecology, to your friendships, and to your money? Will you submit to Jesus Will you have him to be your king, to live under his rule, to share in his work, to embrace his mission? Will you lay your garments before him and really mean it? Will you enthrone him on your praises? Will you embrace him even when he says something you disagree with? Will you embrace him even when he doesn't fulfill your expectations? Will you crown him when you disagree with him or will you crucify him? 
We must answer one way or another. Because when it comes to Jesus, he doesn't allow a middle ground. He will not allow you to stop him from being king. He won't let you push him into a neutral place. He will not enter the gates of our lives as a consultant or a motivational speaker providing inspiration or a genie just granting our wishes. He rides in as a triumphant king or he doesn't come at all. Yes, he comes in meekness and in gentleness. Yes, that's where the passage starts. But he also comes to cleanse you and to destroy the old you and to make you into a new person, a temple fit for him to dwell in. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem to give suggestions or tips for better living. In Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48, we see a gentle, meek king riding into Jerusalem, but he is a king, and he comes into your life to rule the totality of your life. Will you have him? Will you fight for him or against him? It's been said that the essence of sin is putting yourself in the place of the king. And the essence of salvation is the king putting himself in the place of sinners. Will you have the king to be your savior? Not the homeboy. Not the meek old grandpa in the sky. But the king. If so, you should know you cannot have his healing touch without allowing him to transform you. You cannot have his forgiveness Unless you commit to obey him. His salvation is always a package deal. He will not save those he cannot command. And so as we stand here at the beginning of the most important week of the year. We begin Holy Week with the same question forced upon us. That the King Jesus forced upon Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. What will you do with him? Will you receive him cross and all? Will you be fickle about Jesus like the crowds, praising him one day, jeering at him the next, obeying him one moment, disobeying him another? Or will you be completely sold out? Sold out to the king. He is the generous creator. And as we will be so powerfully reminded this week, he generously not only created, but he generously gives all of himself to rescue us. And we must respond by generously giving all of ourselves to him. Are you bending your knee in total obedience to King Jesus? Have you yielded to him as your owner? As distasteful as you've been trained to hear that word. Will you become his slave? So that he is the master of all of you. If not, what a gift this week is for you. Because this week, you have a chance to remember these truths. And to bend your life into obedience. The obedience of faith. Of King Jesus. This week you have a chance. To open your life. 
to the king. And if you will, he will deliver you into true freedom. Let's pray.